This morning we're going to be parked for a while in a garden. And we're going to look at three different scenes that come to us out of that garden. In John chapter 19, we read that after Jesus was crucified, that near Golgotha, where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a tomb, a tomb where no one had been laid. And so because the Sabbath was approaching, they took Jesus' body down off of the cross, and they took him into that garden, and they laid him in that tomb. That's where we begin. That's where I want us to begin to imagine that scene of being life in that garden as we look at these three scenes that come to us from that garden this morning. The first scene we're going to look at is the fact that in this garden there is a tomb. A tomb. In 1986, I had the opportunity uh, as a Bible college student to go to France on an exchange program. And I spent six weeks there. Part of that was working for a local farmer. Part of that was touring around. Part of that was working at a summer camp uh, as I was learning the French language. When my time was up and we had about a week to tour after we were finished at the camp, we had the opportunity, because we were in the Strasbourg area in Alsace-Lorraine, to go and visit uh, the largest American cemetery in Europe, at Saint-Evold, France. There are nine fields of crosses at that place, of young men and older men who gave their lives and paid the ultimate sacrifice in both the Great War and the Second World War. Here's what I journaled. Um, uh, after that experience of visiting the cemetery at Santa Bold. I wrote, we left the camp at about 8.45 a.m. and went to Santa Bold to see the American cemetery there. 10,439 soldiers are buried there. It was an interesting experience to walk past the rows upon rows of white crosses and know that only 40 years earlier, those young men died. As I walked, I heard in my mind the noises of war, the cannons roaring, machine guns spattering, men yelling as they raced through the murderous fire. And I do remember that. I remember walking through those rows of crosses, and I remember in my, in my mind hearing the sounds of battle. Cemeteries are quiet places. I'm sure you've, you've been to cemeteries before, and we have one right across the street, and every once in a while I'll see someone over there walking through it, looking at the, at the grave markers. But they're quiet places, and they're often kept beautifully like gardens. But they are places of the dead. And I want you to, want to imagine with me, what if you were with the women, Mary and the others, who came early that morning while it was still dark into that garden, to that tomb, that place of the dead, where they were looking for Jesus. Perhaps they heard the sound of the birds early, early in the morning, just beginning to greet the new day. And as they walked through the stillness of that garden toward the tomb, perhaps they heard the echoes in their ears of Jesus' words from the cross. 
as they played back in their mind over and over again the events of just a few hours earlier when Jesus had died on the cross? What would they have heard? I wonder if they had been walking along, they would have heard the echoes of Jesus speaking Psalm 22. Let's listen as Jamie, Christian, and Armand come up and share with us some of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh my strength, come quickly to help me. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All of you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. It, it is, is finished. Well, didn't you do great? <clears throat> Thank you, gentlemen. You guys did awesome. That was great. Thank you. Would they have heard the echoes of Psalm 22? You know, because that was such a graphic portrayal, wasn't it, of what Jesus had just finished going through. And yet, embedded in that psalm are all of the promises of hope. 
all of the promises of life, all of the good things, all of the goodness that would come out of Good Friday was also promised and embedded in that psalm. And for the Hebrew people, I wrote a blog about this this week, if you, if you saw it on the, on the website. For the Hebrew people, when they heard Jesus speak, even if he'd only spoken those first two verses, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have heard the entire psalm because they did it all from memory. And Jesus' allusion to those two verses would have invoked the entire psalm in the hearing of everyone who watched him die. Embedded in his death were the seeds of life, new life. Earlier before that, when he'd shared the Last Supper with them, the Passover with them, in there also, in the, in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, were the seeds of new life. We're going to have our communion now and take that together. But as we do that, I want us to think about, I want us to think about something. Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. And he took the cup and he says, this is my blood, this new covenant. Jesus was having the last supper with his disciples, but in the last supper, he was starting something new. It was the beginning of something. It wasn't the ending of something. It was the beginning of something. Andy Stanley, in his book, Irresistible, talks about Jesus and the final Passover. And he says this. He says, Jesus used his final Passover to announce the end of the Passover as they knew it and to signal the inauguration of a new covenant. Not a covenant between God and an individual, as was the case with Abraham. Not a covenant between God and a particular nation, as was the case with Israel. This was the big one, the final one, the everlasting one. This was a covenant between God and the human race, every nation for every generation. The inauguration of a new covenant signaled the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and the finale of his covenant with Israel. Finally, something for everybody. With the inauguration of this new covenant, finally, every nation would be blessed. Jesus began something new. And he took the bread and he took the cup and he said, here, and when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I am the beginning of that something new. It all revolves around me. It begins with me and flows out from me. And now all these years later, with millions and millions and millions of people who have taken of the cup and taken of the bread, who are part of the new, you and I have the opportunity this morning to do the same. And we do it in remembering Jesus and remembering that because of him, you and I are part of the new. Out of his death comes life. And you and I are alive because of him. So we're going to take of the bread and of the cup now. The ushers could come forward and get ready for that. And then after, they're going to pass the plate for the offering so that you have a chance to give your tithes and offerings if you so choose today. So let me just pray for the bread and the cup. We'll enjoy communion together, and then we'll come back and continue. Let's pray. It is true. 
It is true, Father. Jesus gives life. And out of him comes new beginnings, new life. And we are so grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, that you so understood your purpose. That on that night that you were betrayed, you would take the bread and the cup and you would take it and you would, you would give thanks for it and you would break it and you would give it to them and you would say, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then you would take the cup and you would give thanks for it and you would give it to them and you'd say, drink all, from it, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood. We have come to understand what that means so profoundly. Our lives have been changed by that. And even though at that moment the disciples probably wondered what on earth was going on in heaven and in Jesus' heart, it was understood completely. And now we understand. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you that out of that sacrifice comes new life for us and for any who will receive it. We ask your blessing on our bread and the cup today as we celebrate this communion together. We ask you to receive our offering uh, as well, Lord, and to bless it for the advance of your kingdom. For there are so many all around us who don't understand the new life that has been purchased for them with the blood of Jesus. And we want them to be here next year sharing with us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was great. See, we're already celebrating. Woo and we should, because the second scene reminds us that when they got there, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And we cannot minimize the significance of that fact. The fact that Jesus wasn't there, that Jesus was risen, changes everything. It really does. As Jeff mentioned at the beginning of our service a few minutes ago, that without the resurrection, we don't have a Christianity. We might have a good moral way to live. We might have a good role model in a teacher who lived a wonderful life and gave himself sacrificially in love for others. We might have a lot going for us that we could want to emulate him, but that's all we would have. And because of that, we might not really be that much different from some of the other movements on earth where there's been a great leader, a great moral leader who's, who's left a great legacy and encouraged and inspired people to follow in that leg legacy for themselves. And the thing that Christianity hinges upon is this fact that when they got there, the tomb was empty. That he was risen. You see, that's a game changer. Because Jesus had said he would rise. And he said that whoever believes in me will not die. And if he could bring himself back from death, that's a pretty convincing proof that he can do it for you and me too. That's a pretty convincing proof. It changes everything. Jesus defeated death. The Apostle Paul would go on in Romans chapter 6 to explain it to us this way, and I'll read from the message. He says, We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. 
When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That's the claim. That's the claim of Christianity, that those who are in Christ are dead to sin and alive to Christ, and the proof of it is the resurrection. It's that simple. It's that simple. But Jesus himself said this in John chapter 10, didn't he? Where he said this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Another bold promise on the far side of the cross. That word perish is an interesting one because it means, it means to destroy or to put to an end entirely. So what he's saying is that those who, who know him, those who follow him, will never be destroyed and never be put to an end entirely. They will not perish. They will not perish. What an incredible promise that is. And if he could bring himself back from the grave, he can certainly do that for you and I. That's our confidence. That's what we believe we had the opportunity, a number of us, to go to uh, the Willow Creek uh, Leadership Summit, the Global Leadership Summit last summer. And I hadn't been for a while. We used to go back a, a number of years ago, and it had probably been 10 years or so since we'd sent a group from Forestbrook to go to one of these. Um, and that's the, uh, the Willow Creek um, uh, Conference. One of my favorite speakers from years ago at that conference was Erwin McManus. And so I was excited when I saw that last August at their leadership summit, Erwin McManus was going to be one of the featured speakers. Erwin McManus is, um, a, is the pastor of Mosaic, a church in California, uh, and an author, and, uh, and really a progressive uh, thinker in the body of Christ today. Has been actually for quite, a, quite, for quite a while. But I hadn't heard anything from him for quite a while. It had been, it'd been several years since I'd heard anything out of Erwin McManus, interestingly enough. So I was eager to hear what he had to say. He was one of the last speakers at the conference, and when he spoke, he talked about how, for the last number of years, he'd been going through a battle with cancer. He'd had a diagnosis when he was writing his book, The Last Arrow, he was, he was given a diagnosis that he had cancer, and he was thrown into the fight of his life. And Maureen, you know what that's all about, and others of you do here as well. What a, what, a, what a game changer that is when you hear that and how that focuses your life in a very unique and powerful way. And of course, he had that, that exact same experience. And so he talked to us about what it was like to have that diagnosis and go through that battle. But the interesting thing that he said was he was, he was just writing a book called The Last Arrow, which, was, which is all about how to live your life to the full before you die. And then he got that diagnosis, and he said it just zeroed right in, and he, he realized, you know, he was wondering if he'd even have time to finish the book. But he went through the surgery, and he went through the chemo and the radiation, and he fought his way back, and he was back now telling us, standing on the platform, telling us some of the things that he had learned through that struggle and what he'd written in the book. Here's what he says in the book. Life is a series of challenges, adventures, and yes, even battles. There will always be giants to subdue and dragons to slay. 
I had already decided, I have already decided uh, to die with my sword in my hand. There is more courage in us than danger ahead of us. You are strong enough for the battles ahead. My intention for you in this book is that you would never surrender, that you would never settle, that you would save nothing for the next life. May you die with your quivers empty. May you die with your hearts full. Death was behind him. And he said, I'm not, he said, I was never afraid to die. When I got the diagnosis, I wasn't afraid to die. He said, because in Christ, I was already dead and alive again. And so I had no fear of death. It was never about me dying. It was about whether or not I had lived to the full before the next chapter of my eternity begins. Had I laid it all down? Had I left it all on the table? Had I given all for God before he calls me on to the next stage of my eternal life? That is what he was concerned about. Jesus defeated death. And if you are in Christ, that death, that mortal death, is behind you. Is behind you. You will not perish. That's his promise. That is his promise. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Mystery of the Holy Spirit, puts it this way. The joy we have is a post-resurrection joy. You see... Christ came out of the grave. And the joy we have is the joy that looks back on death, not the joy that we have in spite of the fact that we have to die. The joy we have is a result of the fact that in Christ we already died and arose, and there is no death out there for the true child of God. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Or do we still live with a fear of death? Because if we're in Christ and we live with a fear of death, we live a life of unbelief. Because this is what the resurrection teaches us. This is what the empty tomb says to us. The tomb was empty. He defeated death. And his victory is our victory if we are in him. Because he says, if you're with me, You'll never perish. You'll never perish. That is worth celebrating. That better? There we go. Seamless. <laughs> hey, Herbie, you do recognize who's the guy making all the mistakes, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not them. They're doing awesome. <laughs> We go to our third scene, and this is the scene um, where it gets really good, really good. And uh, this is the scene where Mary meets the gardener. I want to read to you from John chapter 20, um, verses 11 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. They saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. Everything turned for her when she heard Jesus speak her name. She wasn't sure who he was at first. There was somebody standing there. The tomb was empty. The angels were there. She thought it was the gardener. I can't begin to unpack the imagery that John is putting in this story and, and, and the parallels, if we would catch them, about just what is going on here with God in the new creation. What began in a garden with the fall of humanity is happening now in another garden with the creation of new humanity. And Jesus is the gardener and the second Adam, all wrapped up into one. And Mary, when she hears her name, when she hears Jesus say her name, Mary, she immediately knows who he is. The, whatever blinders, whatever, whatever had been blocking her ability to see and understand who he was, was gone, removed completely. And she said, Rabbi, teacher, my Lord. She knew immediately who he was. John chapter 5, verse 25 says that when the dead hear Jesus' name, they come to life. When he calls their name, when Jesus calls your name, you come to life. From death to life, when you recognize him calling your name. This is what John said in John chapter 10. Let's go back to that passage for a second. In John chapter 10, where he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life that they shall never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand. There's a couple of things in this passage that I want us to focus on and hear before we go today. One is the level of intimacy that Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They listen to my voice. Mary did not know who he was until he spoke her name. And once he spoke her name, she knew exactly who he was and everything changed for her. And even though she might not have been able to understand the mystery of the resurrection or how could this be, she knew who he was. And that was all that mattered. Because now he could speak to her and lead her from his resurrected life 
and she could become part of the new humanity that he was creating. The other thing I want us to notice here is that he says, I will give them eternal life. We already talked about never perishing, but let's pause here for a second. I will give them eternal life. I believe that we, as evangelicals, have sold ourselves and one another short on what it is that Jesus actually offers us if we're in him. Did you know, I looked this up in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. I looked up eternal life. There is no entry in the Evangelical Theological Dictionary for eternal life. It's not there. You see, we're all about heaven. We're all about going to heaven. We're all about, you know, living your life, being faithful and all of that, and dying and going to heaven, and it all starts there. It's going to be good there. It's all going to be great there. That's the reward. That's when it all takes place for us. Lots in the Evangelical Theological Dictionary about heaven. Nothing about eternal life. George Eldon Ladd's New Testament of Theology has 17 pages on eternal life. And he says that eternal life, I mean, for John's gospel, eternal life is the thing. That is the promise. That is the gift. That is the reward. And here's how he defines it. Eternal life, John uses it 17 times in his gospel. It is the thing that Jesus says he will give, his eternal life. And it means life with God without end. And it starts now. Life with God without end. And it starts now. When you are in Christ... You have it. You've begun it. Life with Christ, without end, is yours now. And we are meant to begin to embrace that life, to live that life, to experience that life. He said it is the present experience of the life to come, not an extension of this life, but a new kind of life altogether in Christ. That is what eternal life means. Life without end with Christ. But it's not an extension of this life. It's not like you're going to just continue to be an all. No, it's a new kind of life. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. When Mary heard Jesus say her name, she understood and started a new life. Because as the second Adam, he was coming to create a new humanity. We've been talking about this in our church for a long time. Made for more, Ephesians. That you are made alive in Christ, you are raised with Christ, you are seated with Christ now. Even though you'll enjoy a much more abundant fullness in the future, it has started now. And you see, I think that because we have had such a, a focus on heaven, we've failed to live the fullness of the life of eternity now. Enough of that. No more of that. No more of that. We are meant to live eternal life now. And there's so much more that could be said about that. Come back next week, we'll start getting into it. (laughs) I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions to think about. You see, this is the story of Easter. This is the good news of Easter. Death is defeated. Eternal life is yours now if you are in Christ. There is no life apart from him. 
He's the only one who came back from the grave. He's the only one who started the new humanity. And he says, if you're with me, all this is yours. So come be with me. Come be with me. That's the message of Easter. That's what it is to be a resurrection people. These are two questions I want us to think about. Have you heard Jesus speak your name? Makes all the difference. I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. I'm not asking you how much you know about the Gospels or how much you know about Jesus or how much you can tell me about church history. Or I'm not asking, I'm, have you heard him speak your name? Do you know him intimately? Can you recognize his voice? Can you listen to his voice? That's what he invites us to. Into a relationship with him, the risen Lord, who every morning when you get up says, good morning, Carl, if your name's Carl. If your name's not Carl, he says something else. But <laughs> I use that as an illustration. Every morning, every morning he knows you. And when you turn your face toward him, he speaks your name and he says, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Brothers and sisters, there's no life like it. I wish I'd discovered it 30 years ago when I became a Christian. I really do. And as Irwin McManus said, when he was facing the finality of his days, his fear was that he hadn't lived that life to the fullest before he graduated. Don't let that be said of you or of me. We can't wait for heaven. Eternal life has already started if you're in Christ. And we need to be on it. We need to be into it. Have you heard him speak your name? If you haven't, and you don't know what I'm talking about, or it sounds foreign and strange to you, I encourage you, come up to the front here after the service. I and others will be here. We will be happy to meet with you, pray with you, talk with you, answer your questions. But don't leave here wondering. Don't leave here wondering. The second question is, who will you go and tell? Good news is meant to be shared. And that's the other part of Easter. He says to Mary, he says, go and tell my brothers. She was the first evangelist, right? Go and tell. She was the first to see the risen Lord. She was the first to see the risen Christ. She was the first to be born into the new humanity. And she says, and he says to her, go and tell. Good news is meant to be shared. It's not just for you and me. It's not for us to hold on to. It's not for us to cling to. Jesus says, don't cling to me. Go and tell. We're part of the greatest reconciliation, restoration, recreation project in creation history. And you and I have a part to play in that. And Jesus says, go and tell. Go be part of it. Go be part of it. So as we go today, my question to you is this. Who will you go and tell? I'd like to invite Lindsay and our team to come up. We're going to end by doing a kind of a practical exercise, give you an opportunity to demonstrate, to, to demonstrate to yourself and to others that you are, in fact, willing to go and tell. Lindsay. Lindsay.